0: Today, we're bringing you a conversation from Fidelity Canada's Vision 2024 event in Toronto. Vision offers insights from our portfolio managers and investment experts and provides their comments on the current market environment, Fidelity's investment process, and our global research network operation. The following conversation is with Fidelity Director of Global Macro, Yurian Timmer. Yurian discusses market trends, economic growth, and global interest rates, and much more. Yurian also shares charts with the live audience. This conversation was recorded on January 31st, 2024.
1: Uh, One of the benefits of going up last is that I get to hear everyone else present. And I think we can uh, all say that we learned a lot from some really, truly great minds and not only great minds, but humble minds, which is a very good and rare thing in this world. um, And it's definitely a feature of fidelity. Um, Let me just make sure this works. Okay, very good. Um, I'm a storyteller, basically, so I'm going to take you on a journey uh, around the markets. I've got a lot of slides I'm going to throw at you, but you're all fans, so you've all seen them before. So I'm going to go fast and furious and um, try to tell the story of the markets and see where we can land for, for 2024. So Will very correctly mentioned earlier that the market tends to go up uh, and it goes up 73% of the time, um, which means it also goes down about a third of the time. But one way to describe that is actually showing the market against itself as a scatter plot. So I've got the S&P 500 index here and also there. And just like life and just like the trees and, and us, uh, you tend to have growth over time. So uh, with all with all due respect for Dan, I'm an optimist, and I think generally the market is going to grow, but it is good to have downside protection. So I, I'm glad he's on, he's on the team. Uh, but you see the corrections, right? And they, in the grand scheme of things, we're all dead, of course, but in the really grand scheme of things, going back 150 years, you see the corrections we have, and they are little bumps on the road. They're not all so little. The Great Depression was right here. But over over time, the market goes up. And if you put that in a table and you look at what just happened for the S&P 500, at least in the U.S. a couple of weeks ago, is that after a 28% decline in 2022, markets making new all-time highs. That is a kind of momentum that tends to feed on itself. So if you look at the overall history, the... Price index, the S&P 500 price index goes up 8.5% per year, 73% of the time. Once you've made a new high after some sort of correction or bear market, tends to go up 13.8%, 89% of the time. Uh, That doesn't mean it can't go down. This is no time to be complacent. And if you look at the drawdown, the worst drawdown that comes in the two years after a new high, there's some doozies in there, right? The market made a new all-time high in the summer of 2007. It then peaked in October of 2007, and then it fell 57%. So there are no guarantees. There's no sure thing. Uh, and that's a good lesson for having a very diversified portfolio. Um, and I think from all the speakers today, uh, we can pace together a pretty diversified portfolio. Um, there's always caveats there's always nuances and one of the somewhat unusual nuances of the new highs that the S&P cap weighted index has made is that it has not been joined by the S&P equal weighted index. And I'll mention that more in a moment. And while the S&P is making a new all time high, the Russell 2000, which is the, the best known small cap index, is actually still in a confirmed bear market. It's down 20% below its all-time high. Um, I think that is the first time we've had that kind of gap. But if you look at this chart and you look at the drawdown, so this is, um, this is the drawdown in gray for the S&P, the drawdown in orange uh, for the Russell 2000. So this is the decline after you know, from a, a previous high. You can see that, generally speaking, small caps fall more than large caps which makes sense, they're more economically sensitive, they have worse balance sheets, et cetera, et cetera. So when you have a drawdown, a bear market, um, it makes sense that small caps go down more, and therefore it also makes sense that it takes them longer to make a new high after that happens. And so history shows that it's not necessarily an alarm bell when small caps don't confirm a new high by large caps, And so I think of it as the generals and the soldiers and the generals are leading, uh, but historically the soldiers have always followed and I suspect that that will be the case this year. Uh, So when we look at kind of this tale of two markets, S&P 500 cap weighted index versus everything else, uh, you see that we're on trend. So this is a trend line going back a couple of decades. And if we go back a couple of centuries, the trend line basically looks the same. And we can see kind of how upside down and topsy-turvy the COVID cycle has been, or the pandemic and post-pandemic cycle. So just to kind of bring you back there for a moment, of course, we had a pandemic. um, That caused a 35% five-week crash in the markets. Then came this monstrous policy stimulus, both fiscal and monetary, the likes of which we have not seen since World War II, you know, some uh, in the 1940s, that unleashed a huge recovery. And I remember, you know, me and Pamela every Monday, talking about this at the fidelity connects, um, and how apparently dislocated the price action was from the fundamentals. And I'll show you in a moment that that tends to always be the case, or at least it it seems to be that way. But we had an incredible uh, recovery, it actually became a bubble, it was the everything bubble uh, because the Federal Reserve and other central banks pushed rates so far down and kept them there for so long that when you think about valuation of any asset class, the interest rate that you use, the cost of capital matters and the cost of capital went way down. And when you think about equity valuation, right? you look at a DCF, or discounted cash flow models, model, it's earnings over rates, and that rate went way down and therefore the present value of future earnings which is how we determine valuation went way up so the pe went from 14 to 29 um, and then came the great reset right the s p was above its trend channel then the fed slammed on the brakes went from zero to five and three-eighths and that caused evaluation correction of 28%, so actually for the valuation, it was more like 35%. Um, And it was a very unusual bear market because there was no loss in earnings, there was no recession, it was entirely valuation based on a rising cost of capital. So the PE went all the way back down to 16, and then the market kind of zigged while the Fed was still zagging, and the market has now recovered uh, in anticipation of a recovery, basically. So the bottom was in October of 2022. So already almost uh, 15, 16 months ago. Um, And that recovery has brought the market back into the channel towards the upper band. And so this is what the narrative has been. But again, the rest of the market has not followed quite yet what the Magnificent Seven, or you know, the mega cap growers, have done. So this is actually my, I think, my favorite chart or the most important one. This is the S and P 500 equal weighted index. So all the companies equally weighted, as opposed to cap weighted, because the Mag Seven is 30% of the market. So that's a very big chunk. And um, what this chart shows me is uh, a pretty good story, right? So. The, the overall trend line, as I showed in the first chart, is up. Right, the market tends to go up. Uh, the economy tends to grow. People are inventive. You know, it's just it's human nature, and so the market tends to go up. But it tends to go up in a stair-step pattern. Right, so you get big impulsive rallies, then kind of frustrating long consolidations, more rallies, more corrections. Sometimes you get a crash in there, another rally and we have now been going sideways for 106 weeks. Uh, That is a long time for the market to not be kind of in line with its rising trend. And so uh, I'm a chartist, if you couldn't tell, uh, chartists will look at this pattern and call this a base. This is a basing pattern, at least until, until it's confirmed, it looks like a basing pattern. It could be a top, but this would be the most elongated top I've ever seen. And so in all likelihood, in 2024, fairly imminently, I think the market will resume the uptrend. And if you look at the shading here, that shows the percentage of stocks above their moving average. So it shows you a measure of breadth. And so green is good, red is bad. And usually, of course, when the market goes down, it's red by definition. But these periods of sustained uptrends tend to be very green. And I think that's what's going to happen. So I'm kind of in the bullish broadening camp um, with, the, with the, the one caveat being that I think the market will broaden. And I think the stuff that has been left behind, the companies that were kind of forgotten because they were held back by the Fed's you know restrictive policy, they'll have a chance to breathe again. Um, and I think the market will broaden. But whether those stocks will outperform the mag seven, I think is a question that nobody has an answer to. And what it does to the overall index, the cap weighted index, is something I'm kind of struggling with as well. Because if seven stocks comprise 30% of the market, and those stocks are being sold to buy the other 493, how much can the actual index go up when you have selling pressure on such a dominant part? And so I don't have an answer to that question, uh, but I think the market will go up and it will broaden. Um, but whether you know, value outperforms growth, I'm not sure yet, at least. Um, One of the reasons why market timing is difficult, if not impossible, and I've been doing this for four decades, and the longer I do this, the more I believe in not market timing, Uh, so following Will's uh, advice, just buy these 10-year stories and don't sell them. Uh, One of the reasons it's so difficult is because even though price follows earnings, as Will said earlier, over the long run, over the short term, price actually leads earnings in, in that Price will move on the expectation of earnings growth, right? So pr- markets always discount the future, not always correctly. The markets are not infallible. Uh, market behavior is a subset of human behavior, and we're all flawed. And so the markets are not always right, but the markets do always anticipate. And what that means is that at inflection points, the price will be already moving up, even though the earnings will still be falling. And and we saw we saw this. Four years ago, I can't believe it's been four years since the pandemic. Uh, We started the Monday show in March of 2020. um, And so we've done weekly shows for now four weeks. I'm expecting some royalties on that. Um, But what you can see is that price leads earnings. And so when you deconstruct the market's return into dividends plus earnings growth plus changes in the PE, those three things together mathematically is what the return is. And if you look at the blue bars here, that's earnings growth, okay? And so you can see a cyclical swing there. And then when you look at the pink bars, which is the change in valuation, it's basically the opposite. Um, not always, but usually. Oh, there goes my styles, oh no. Okay, okay. All right, plan B. okay all right now it's charging. Uh, I may have to go without the stylus for a moment. Uh, but anyway, if you put that into a regression, you can see a negative correlation. So the PE change tends to be negatively correlated to the earnings change. And that means that at bottoms the price action makes no sense because the world is still ending around us. Um, and so that's why we don't market time. that's why we have a diversified portfolio instead. So, Long story short, the rally since the October 2022 bottom has been all PE driven uh, because earnings fell a very modest 3% in 2023. And they are on track now to grow 11% in 2024. That might be a little optimistic because these earnings estimates, as Andrew mentioned earlier, uh, always start too high and then come down. So maybe we get trend-like earnings growth of 6 7%. Um, But the baton is getting passed from valuation to earnings in 2024, which, as Andrew said earlier, does mean we need to get those earnings. Or if we don't, the market has already rallied five, six PE points in anticipation of an earnings recovery, which then would not happen. And then the market is over its skis. So the earnings story has to come through. This chart shows the PE bands uh, of of expected earnings and uh, those earnings expectations are positive for both 24 and 25. Earnings bottomed in the third quarter of last year. We're in the middle of earnings season right now. The big story I think is margins. So revenues, nominal S&P 500 revenues Never fell in 22 or 23. They've stayed basically steady. Earnings fell ever so slightly by 3%. And the difference is that margins fell. So margins are 12.6, they've risen from 12.2. So that's been the recovery story. And that's one of the things that um, I'm watching most carefully for 2024. Um, we cannot dismiss the tail event. Um, and both Andrew mentioned that as well as Dan. Um, that yield curve has been inverted and is still inverted. It is now uninverting or disinverting, uh, which is often the most dangerous time of the yield curve signal. But the yield curve, an inverted curve, meaning short rates are above long rates, um, ha- does have an infallible track record. It has always led to a recession of some sort. Um, and we have to be prepared for that tail, right? The, the Mar- last year, a year ago, we came into the year expecting that recession. We were waiting for that shoe to drop. That yield curve was inverted. We had the rate reset in '22. Now was gonna. Now the, the earnings re- reset would happen in '23. Didn't happen. Well, actually, earnings did fall slightly, but the economy remained pretty resilient. So now we're coming into '24. And the soft landing scenario is, I think, completely discounted. Um, and so now we have to worry about the tail on the other side, right? If you think about all the outcomes as a bell curve distribution, left tail, right tail, middle, uh, we kind of navigated all of the tails and the middle in 2023. We came in looking for a recession. By the summer, bond yields were hitting 5%. And at the end of the yield, we were at Goldilocks. Uh, at the end of the year, we were at Goldilocks. So we have to be respectful of this. And as you can see from this chart, when the curve starts disinverting, so it gets less inverted, uh, you've seen some pretty big drawdowns. The problem is, is that the, the occurrences, there are not many of them, uh, and they're all over the place. So converting this chart into a investment strategy playbook is not easy, right? Because there are four things you need to know. You need to know when the recession starts, how bad it's gonna be, how long it's going to be. And even if you knew all of those things, which of course nobody does, you need to know how much of it is already discounted by the price. And we don't know any of those questions. So rather than a futile experiment in market timing, better to have a diversified portfolio, like where the the global equity plus, where you have a little bit of everything, you got some bonds, you got some diversifiers, and we'll talk about that um, in a moment. Uh, I wanted to mention one historical cycle, and if you know my work, you know that I'm a, a history a history geek. Um, we've had this, un- you know, normally when the market is in a bear market, there's a recession, earnings are falling, then the Fed is cutting rates, and then eventually they cut rates enough that the cycle recovers, and then you have a new early cycle bull market. Um, of course, this has been anything but a normal cycle. And the one analog that comes to mind was actually the 1973-74 bear market. I was still a teenager back then, so I didn't experience it firsthand. But that was a bear market, which in many ways was totally different. It was a 48% decline. Inflation, of course, was soaring. Uh, But that was a decline from January 73 to October 74 uh, that did not produce any earnings decline. There was no recession. The Fed was raising rates the entire time, and the market fell entirely because the PE was getting slaughtered, basically. It went from 20 to 7. Uh, so, totally different from today, except for in terms of the PE, but the same cadence of events. Then the recession started, the Fed started cutting rates, earnings fell, and guess what happened? The market went up in seven, late 74, 75. On top of that, That period was the first, the original nifty 50 period of mega cap growth leadership. And those mega caps were leading on the way up. They started leading on the way down. And then there was a rotation into everything else. And that rotation happened while the market recovered and the Fed was cutting and we had a recession and earnings fell. Now, there are some parallels in that, potentially in that timing. So if you didn't have that scenario on your bingo card for 2024, I would put it on there because this mar- this market cycle has been so upside down that it's almost like we need to find the most improbable outcome for 2024 and just assume that that's going to happen. So that's my little my little history lesson. Um, in terms of the Fed, you know, Jeff Moore did a great job um, summarizing this earlier. I'm waiting for the flashing. Ooh. All right, uh, fast charge. Um, Jeff Moore did a great job summarizing the Federal Reserve policy earlier. We actually just got word from the FOMC. It's obviously not incorporated in this chart, uh, but the FOMC just had a meeting, and uh, during which they signaled, like, okay, don't count your chickens too fast. Uh, we're not, we're not, we're not quite. Ha- we don't quite have a bias to ease just yet. Uh, Which brings to mind this chart, uh, because that's been exactly my thesis uh, already. So the market going into this year is expecting a lot of rate cuts. Uh, Currently, the Fed funds rate is at five and three eighths. The forward curve, which I'm sure looks different now that the FOMC has come out, but as of a few days ago, was expecting about 200 basis points of rate cuts over the next year or two. I think that's wild, wildly unrealistic unless we're in a recession, which may very well happen. But in the soft landing narrative, like you can't have it both ways. right? You can't bet on a soft landing and expect 200 basis points of rate cuts. Um, so the way I think about it is that core PCE is the Fed's favorite measure of inflation. It peaked at 5.6. It is now at 2.9. Great news, obviously, that it's coming down. Uh, but in this sort of modern era of, you know, this post zero interest rate era of maybe what we can call sound money, um, there should be a positive spread over the inflation rate. There should be a a positive real rate. So if inflation is three-ish, and my guess is it's going to stay around there. Maybe it goes down a little bit more. Um, then the terminal Fed funds rate should be north of that. And and it, you know one way of thinking about that is if the neutral rate and Andrew showed this earlier is around one percent and inflation is three percent, neutral is four. It's not three. It's not three and a half. And one of the things I would recommend keeping in mind is that you know while the year-over-year inflation rate has come down and may very well go to 2%, which of course would be great, the longer term inflation rate, so the five-year rate of change of the CPI, for instance, has gone from two to four, right? The Fed would want to see that go back to two, and that's gonna take some time, or it's going to take very big deflation to get that five-year number down. So even if the CPI or the PCE goes to 2% in the next three or six months, uh, the Fed's not gonna declare a victory, uh, I don't think, or n- nor, nor should it. Um, and so, uh, let me skip over, because Andrew showed this chart before. Uh, so I think the Fed will cut rates, the Fed should cut rates, because inflation is falling, which means that if the Fed does not cut rates, in real terms, its policy will get more restrictive. And that's not appropriate in a slowing economy, we've seen the layoffs. So the Fed should be cutting rates, to maintain a, a target positive real rate over the natural rate or over inflation. So it makes sense. And what the Fed signaled in December was three rate cuts. And that seems very reasonable to me. So what does that mean for bonds? I'm not gonna argue with with, with Jeff Moore. On, on the bond market, you know, my I have a simple model based on the forward curve and nominal GDP growth. Uh, and that says that fair value is around 4.2, and guess what, we're basically there. Uh, So it shows this band, and uh, it suggests that the yield will come down, but that's based on the forward curve, which I think is unrealistic in terms of how much rates can come down. But four to four and a half is sort of fair value, and I think the math works there, even if yields don't come down, right? So if you you look at the, the Bloomberg Aggregate Index, uh, it has a duration of around six and a yield of around five. Uh, I'm just using rough numbers. So if yields go down 100 basis points, you get six plus five is eleven percent return. If yields go um, uh, up a hundred basis points, you get minus six plus five, which is minus one. So your risk reward is plus 11 to minus one, which you know if we had that in the stock market, we would be doing this all day long. So the math is really favorable here. And I agree with with, with, with Jeff and Stacy that the belly of the curve makes a lot of sense. Why? Because it's most sensitive to Fed policy. And we still have an issue, in my view at least, that there is not enough compensation over the long term uh, in terms of the term premium. So the term premium is the, the premium that investors get for holding long-term bonds over short-term bonds. And you know, it's been negative for the past couple of decades, uh, but it really should never be negative. I mean, it's a risk premium, it should always be positive. And so in an era of fiscal dominance, which I'll talk about in a moment, it makes sense to me that the term premium should be positive, not negative. It briefly went positive last summer, and it's now basically zero. My guess is it should be about plus one, which tells me that we should have a, st- a, a Uh, a yield curve steepener, but a bear steepener where the long end, you know, like the 30 year maybe goes up five, maybe more, uh, but the front end is lower. Uh, So I don't really like long bonds, but I like the middle of the curve. Um, So speaking of fiscal dominance, this is a chart of the US uh, debt. And the colors show which political party was in power at the time that the debt Kind of kept spiraling higher. We're now at 34 trillion, um, and as you can see, that uh, neither party is innocent from spending money that the government doesn't have. Uh, this is an election year, of course. Um, I, you know, I was so happy when the last one was over. Now we get to do it all over again. So um, I'm, I'm not mentally prepared for that. But I will say that. Um, elections tend to matter less to the markets than many people believe, which does not to say that it doesn't matter. Obviously, at the sector level, it's going to matter in terms of what gets regulated and and all that sort of thing. But, you know, our U.S. GDP is about 28 trillion. Stock market's about 40 trillion. And, um, you know, it's big and it has long legs. um, And so, I think monetary policy probably affects the markets more than than elections. Um, But so the debt is obviously a concern. And the Fed, of course, has been shrinking its balance sheet, probably not for that much longer, uh, which is a conversation for another day. But as the Fed starts cutting rates, it's likely to end QT or quantitative tightening. Um, But you look at this chart, right? And since COVID, the debt has gone up by 10 trillion. The balance sheet of the Fed went up by four and a half trillion, is now up three and a half trillion. You know, who's who's buying these bonds? Uh, that's why yields have gone up. And as we go from a period of, fis- of great moderation to fiscal dominance where deficit spending is going to continue as long as the eye can see because much of the de- of the budget is not discretionary. You know, It's interest rate payments, it's defense, it's entitlements. So the deficit is just gonna keep growing and someone's gonna have to buy those bonds. And right now it's not the Fed, maybe that will change in time. Uh, but that's another reason I think uh, why it's reasonable to expect at least some term premium to come back to the long end of the yield curve. It tends to be only for the long end. Um, one thing though, I, I look at this chart And I'm actually um, I'm geeking out on Federal Reserve history. So I did a a study on the 1940s, which I think is very relevant. so I read volume one of the history of the Federal Reserve. Uh, Now I'm even more intrigued by the 1960s. So now I'm reading volume two of the history of the Federal Reserve. That's what I did on my my Porter flight last uh, yesterday. Uh, Also, because there's no Wi-Fi on Porter's. uh, But that's not that that's not a slam against them. but one thing I've learned is that, you know, the Fed is interested in, um, in, in markets, you know, functioning in a smooth way. Um, and so what I can see happening here in the future is that occasionally there will be a sort of cleanup on aisle four situation going on where uh, a bond auction, you know, it may not fail because they can't really fail because you have the primary dealer auction system. But um, it gets messy and the Fed has to come in and kind of clean it up, do a targeted purchase, which it will insist is not QE, but the markets, uh, and certainly the Bitcoiners will insist it is QE. Um, but I can see episodes of that going forward where the Fed will have to tactically go in and clean up a mess in the bond market uh, and then try to get out of it once the once the, the volatility uh, dies down. So I do expect the Fed to remain active, but not in a overt QE type of way. Um, which brings me to kind of one, somewhat nerdy observation that, uh, not to get into a debate about Keynesianism and monetarism, but um, I think, and this is just my theory, is that the Fed, the reason why the Fed has been so uh, hawkish this cycle, and why it is not likely to give the market the, the rate cuts that the market is expecting, is that I think the Fed is is learning from its past mistakes and does not want to repeat them. And so what are the past mistakes? So here you'll see this red, that was the 1940s. You saw a massive spike in the money supply for obvious reasons from 42 to 46, we went to war. uh, And the the Fed's job, the Fed was not independent yet. The Fed's job was basically to help the treasury finance the war, which it did by keeping yields at two and a half percent. And it saw a massive increase in the money supply, massive inflation. And the Fed kept rates at 1% to 1.5% the whole time. And inflation disappeared. It was transitory. And uh, everything went back to normal, like the 1950s were a period of very low rates, low inflation. And the reason for that was that on the fiscal side, you had a lot of discipline, a lot of prudence. So those deficits turned to surpluses, and the money supply uh, returned back to its historically rising trend line. So the Fed, at that point, when you read the history books, it it thought of itself as impotent against fiscal policy. When you have large debt levels, you can't raise rates a lot. Um, So that period had kind of a happy ending in terms of inflation and bond yields. Then came the 1960s. At which the Fed became highly politicized. Um, there are stories, you know, or, or, or the history books tell you that, like, the Kennedy administration tried to influence monetary policy. Um, and basically, the Fed was asleep at the wheel. And it, during the 1966 67 cycle, the Fed cut rates too soon. And then um, inflation kind of accelerated. And then it had to slam on the brakes. Then you had a recession. Um, and then you had the great inflation. And I mentioned this is because, um, you know the 1940s was not a policy era because the Fed literally was not independent yet, but the 60s were. And it's interesting that no one really thought of policy in real rate terms back then. So it was like, okay, interest rates are here, unemployment is there, so therefore we're gonna cut. And no one really looked at what the real rate was. And so my sense is that the Fed wants to learn from that mistake. Um, And now we're in an era where there's a lot of fiscal stimulus. I mean, we're still running 6 7% deficits in an expansion. And my sense is, and it's just a hunch that the Fed is leaning into that because it does not wanna go back into the past and have these mistakes. So that's another reason why I think the Fed went so hard in 2022 and 23, and why it is not likely to give the market the rate cuts it wants. So um, I'm gonna wrap up here. So what do we do as investors? Like, okay, so I just threw a lot at you. Uh, Markets price for soft landing. I think it will broaden a lot of opportunities for the stocks that were left behind. Uh, Bonds look okay. Um, How do we build a portfolio around this? And so I like to trot out this chart. This is my periodic table of investment returns. As you can see, it's just a hot mess of randomness. Um, which is why we show this to our our investors, because it shows you that it's really hard to predict who's gonna be on top, who's gonna be at the bottom, and and why and when. Um, And so this is as good an argument for a diversified portfolio, including the gentleman that were on uh, before me, uh, to get a little bit of everything, to have some bonds. But when we kind of take a look back and we look at five-year returns instead of yearly returns, we do see some patterns. And one of them is up here, LG means large growth. And down here, LT means long treasuries and COM means commodities. Um, That has been a very, very dominant trend. Uh, The mega growers have now dominated for coming on 10 years, uh, which is a very, very long time. And so the thought of mean reversion is a very juicy opportunity set. a lot of people, including myself, were early on this. We thought it was going to happen last year or the year before. You know, this has to be the year where emerging markets catch up because they're so cheap, and it hasn't happened. But the longer we go on, the more you know plausible that mean reversion uh, I think becomes. So if we look at a chart of all the market cycles, right up here, so we're 37 percent from the low after a 28 percent decline, uh, we're Obviously, or not obviously, we're in a bull market. We're just been confirmed by new highs. But look at the the relative, the, the leadership within the market. So the bottom panel shows the percentage of stocks outperforming the index. Uh, for 2023, it was 26%. Now, if you're an active manager, that's a very small pond to fish from, so it's very difficult. Um, and it's also the most narrow since, or the narrowest since uh, the late '90s, and since that original Nifty Fifty period in the early '70s. Um, and so, you know, eventually mean reversion kicks in. The market broadens. It doesn't always broaden in an upward way, um, like in 2001 and two. It broadened in a huge way, but the market went down 53 percent um, in the in the '74 '75. Initially it broadened while the market was still going down and then it kept broadening when the market went up. And so there is no clear history pattern here to tell me whether a broadening means the market necessarily goes up. You would think it would, right? More companies participating, but it's not so clear and the sample size is very small, but there are a lot of stocks that have been left behind and I think it's an opportunity. And just looking at around the world, right? If you look at the PE ratios, of all the major regions, the U.S. is at you know 20, 21, 22 times earnings. EM is at 12, 13. Europe, Japan is at 14. China is at nine. So there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, uh, with the caveat that valuation alone is not going to be the catalyst to reverse um, from you know to do mean reversion. You need something more fundamental, like relative earnings. Relative performance tends to follow relative earnings. The the, the PE differential just becomes the amplifier, but it doesn't become the cause. So we're we're waiting for a catalyst. And when we go back to this chart here, to the magnificent seven, uh, one big difference this time versus the last two times is that here, in uh, the late 90s, the PE premium of the top 50 stocks over the bottom 450 was 2x. So from 98 to 2000, the bottom 450 went from a 20 multiple to a 20 multiple, and the top 50 went from a 20 to a 40. So that was a bubble, and it imploded on itself. In the 70s, again, a 2x PE over the bottom 450. Today, the top 50 are only at about 35% more expensive than the bottom 450. So you don't have that loaded gun yet where you say, okay, these things are so overvalued, it's gonna implode on itself at some point. We're not there yet. Uh, So uh, the relative performance has been largely justified by relative earnings. But a broad mixture of stocks, I think, makes a lot of sense. Uh, moving to bonds real quick, the correlation of bonds to stocks uh, is now positive. That was obviously a very painful story for 2022. Uh, and that presumably is ending a long period of what we call the great moderation, where you buy a 60-40, and even if those 40 were, were was trading at nosebleed levels, you know, very low rates, at least you were getting that insurance policy, that negative correlation. That has now not been the case for almost two years. Uh, So what do you do about bonds in a period, in an era or a regime where the correlation is positive? The good news is that bonds are a competitive, viable asset class again. Uh, And one way to show that is if you take the yield on the 10-year treasury and you turn it upside down, you get a P.E. You get the price you're paying for future coupons. In 2019, that P.E. was 30. In 2020, it was over 300. Like imagine buying a really boring stock at 300 times earnings, like, okay? Um, and the buyers, of course, were largely non-economic buyers like central banks at the time. We went back down to 20, so 20 is a 5% yield, right? 300 is a 0.3% yield, and we're now at around 25, which is a reasonable uh, valuation. So in the 60-40, I like the 40, I think the 40 has a place not because it's negatively uh, correlated, maybe it will become again, but it's not right now, but you're getting a competitive yield, you're getting a positive real yield, and so they've, they've re-earned their place in a 60-40. But if they don't offer a negative correlation, what do we put in to get that insurance policy against shocks to the sixty? There isn't a lot that is negatively correlated, but there's a lot that is non-correlated or less correlated. So on the left, I showed the Sharp ratios, which is the return over the volatility. And there's a lot of good Sharp ratios out there who also are not that correlated to the S&P. Bitcoin is one of them. Um, uh, you know, a lot of sort of liquid alts or alternative investments like long short, and of course, we have some, uh, some offerings there. Uh, global hedge, managed futures, gold, commodities. Uh, So there are a lot of asset classes that we can sprinkle in there that may not have a negative correlation, but at least they have a very low or non-correlation. And interestingly enough, at the top of this list is the U.S. dollar. Now, that's not necessarily an asset class, like how do you buy the U.S. dollar, uh, maybe through forwards or what have you. But it's interesting that The US dollar seems to have replaced bonds as the most negatively correlated asset for the lack of a better term. So being here in Canada, that's an actionable thing, right? You can own US dollar assets as a form of diversification against uh, an earnings or an economic downturn. So when I sprinkle all of these into what we call an efficient frontier, so volatility on the horizontal, return on the vertical. Um, You can see that long treasuries, You know they used to be up here somewhere, now they're way down there. Now I think that return is going to normalize. And like I said earlier, the math is very compelling. Uh, Even if yields don't go down from here, the math is still compelling. But if you look at the size of these dots, that shows the correlation. There's a lot of stuff in here that is kind of up in the the quadrant where you wanna be, right? You wanna be up and to the left of the efficient frontier, and that I think is the area where I think the opportunities are. So a long short or an equity hedged product, or a managed future, or some commodities, or gold, or a bitcoin, or what have you—that's um, kind of where I'm looking as a way to diversify away from the area where normally we're anchoring our portfolio. And just I'll say one last thing um, on on bitcoin. Uh, I know you know. By now, people have either decided whether they like it or not, um, and they've they've found a way to equitize a position either through an ETF or direct or what have you. Uh, Bitcoin's been around for 15 years. It's got every existential crisis uh, you can think of thrown at it, and it like it keeps coming back from the dead, right? And so, uh, when you think about bubbles, and I've studied all of them. Uh, they never return from the dead. Once they die, they stay dead, and Bitcoin keeps coming back. So I think that earns it some credibility as a aspiring store of value. I think that's really how it fits, if it fits in a 60-40. Um, and, um, and that's kind of how, how I think of it. So I just co-authored a paper, it was released literally two days ago, uh, where we talk about position sizing, and I'll, that's a conversation for another day. But I'll leave you with this one last chart which is that you know you will see that bitcoin is not in here uh, because it doesn't fit on the chart so bitcoin has a very outsized return and an equally outsized volatility and so in order to put bitcoin on this chart we have to redraw the skills and now bitcoin is up here so um, the message here is that a little bit goes a long way So with that, I've drawn on long enough. I thank you very much. Thanks for being such troopers, staying till the very end, and have a great day.
0: Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca/how-to-buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.